Have you ever been invited to a party, a get together, maybe by a spouse, a coworker, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a close friend, and you said yes to the invitation, and as you go to the facility, the home, the building, and you walk in and you look at who's at the party, and you realize that you know absolutely no one. Like not one familiar face, and in those circumstances, it can at times feel a little bit awkward. Like, who am I going to talk to and and what am I going to say? And for some of us, we just kind of go find the nearest couch and don't talk to anybody. And we just kind of say, well, let's hope the party ends soon. But what do we do in those moments? I think for the vast majority of us is what we try to do is we try to find common ground, things we have in common with people to strike up a conversation. For me, it's sports gear. I'm looking for a a Dallas Cowboys sweatshirt or hat where I can say, man, you like the Cowboys, me too. Let's talk about that. For some of us, it's the food that we're eating or the weather that day, things that we all have in common that lead us into a conversation. For some of you, maybe it's a a tattoo on somebody's arm or it's a piece of technology or maybe it's an accent in in the person's voice. Oh man, you're from the South, aren't you? I used to live there. Oh wow, you definitely are from Rochester. (laughs) I can tell just by the way you're speaking. And we try to find commonalities to have conversations. But let me ask you this, when it comes to sharing your faith, inviting somebody to church, or telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ, how do we find things in common with people to ultimately share the gospel with them? I think we're gonna find out as we study the life of Paul is he was a master at this. He was one of the greatest at finding commonalities with all kinds of people, ultimately to tell them about Jesus. If you haven't been with us, we're in week five of this series we're calling Paul. And we're just studying Paul's character, his circumstances, and we're learning a lot from this man's life. In fact, he penned the words, follow me as I follow Jesus. The apostle Paul wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And here's what we've learned in Paul's life so far. God took this man and he turned his life upside down. A man who was persecuting and killing Christians is now the leader of the movement of Christianity. He's preaching the gospel throughout the region to Jews and Gentiles. And what we've noticed in Acts chapter nine, it's kind of our framework for this series. God places a call on this man's life. We find in Acts chapter nine, it says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And here's the calling God gave Paul. He's gonna have a ministry to the Jews and the Gentiles and out of those two ministries, he's gonna suffer greatly for the name of Jesus Christ. And up to this point, we've seen Paul's ministry to the Jews, right? He, he, he went to his people, he was a Jew, the people he loved and longed to experience Jesus, a people who had a framework to spread the good news of Jesus. And as he goes to the Jewish people, they struggle with his message. Unbelieving and and believing Jews opposed what Paul was saying, and so they persecuted him, they tried to kill him, and they tried to get him out of the region. And out of that rebellion from the Jews, Paul begins to go to the Gentiles. Now, you got to understand, a Gentile is just someone outside of Judaism. It's just simply a non-Jewish person. Anybody who wasn't a Jew was referred to as a Gentile in this time frame. And here's what we're going to discover today is that Paul, when he went, no matter who he went to, he would often find common ground with them. 
things that they had in common ultimately to lead them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is what he says about this in 1 Corinthians chapter nine. He says this, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. Now let's pause here for a second because this is really challenging to me. This is really convicting to me because you look at Paul's mentality here in life in general. Paul says, hey, I'm a free man. I'm free because of the gospel, because of what Jesus accomplished for me. That makes me, I have the ability to live in freedom. But although I'm free, I'm gonna choose out of my own volition to be a slave. Now who in their right mind does that? Who in their right mind is is set free and then chooses to go back to being in bondage? Well, Paul did. He even says it. He says, I'm free, but I've chosen to be a slave to people. Why? Because I want them to experience Jesus. Because I want them to know who Jesus is and what he's done in my life and what he can do in their lives. And man, that is so convicting to me because I had to ask myself this question that I'll ask you. Are are, are you like Paul and and you're enslaved to the needs of people around you? Or are you enslaved to your own personal preferences? You see, I think for the vast majority of Christians, including myself, I put my needs and my desires and my wants way ahead of anybody else's. Even the people closest to me, even the people I love, I come first. But Paul clearly says, hey, you wanna know something? I'm I'm so in tune and I'm so in love with what Jesus did for me. I'll step out of freedom into bondage. Why? So that people would know Jesus. And he fleshes this out. Verse 20, look at what he says. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Why? To win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. Why? So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. And look at this line. He says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. What a heart. What a heart. That he says, hey, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll look differently, I'll act differently, just for the sake that some people might come to know Jesus. And what what he ultimately does is Paul just reveals his strategy to all of us. And if you're a Christian today, you know that God has placed a commission on your heart. If you know Jesus as your personal savior, he's forgiven you of your sins and he now leads your life. You know that in Matthew 28, he's placed this commission on your heart to go make disciples. The the hardest question in that commission is how do we do that? And, And Paul was one of the greatest strategic guys when it came to reaching people for the gospel. And so as we look at his life, we gotta ask the question, how did he do it? How did he go about reaching? I mean, this guy's ministry changed the world. So how did he do it? Well, Paul's strategy for reaching people was a simple word called contextualization. Paul's ministry involved adapting to the people he was trying to reach, knowing the culture, understanding the way they thought and the way they acted and what they believed in. And he would adapt to that ultimately to take them to the truth. 
So his strategy was contextualization, a big word, let's break it down. What in the world is contextualization? Well, it's simply letting the audience determine your approach. That's what it means to contextualize. It's, it's when you start with common ground with the people you're trying to communicate with. It's prioritizing, like Paul did, prioritizing how your audience is actually going to take in and hear the message. It's speaking with people, not at them. It's learning to, to, to know how your audience thinks, believes, so that you can begin to lead them to the truth. Ed Stetzer kind of says, says it like this about contextualization. He says this, we receive the truths of Christianity wrapped in the baggage of a particular cultural context. We present the unchanging truths to the gospel within the unique and changing context of cultures and worldview. And so contextualization then is simply about sharing the gospel well. And here's what we're gonna find out as we study Paul's life today is he was a master at this. His strategy, it was the same strategy that often we use today, and we're gonna see how he did it. Acts chapter 17, if you got your Bibles. Acts chapter 17 is where we're gonna be. I'd encourage you to turn there. We're gonna kind of plant here this morning. We're gonna work through uh, starting in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, we provide them at all of our campuses. It's gonna be on page 899. And as you kind of make your way to Acts chapter 17, I just wanna stop and say thanks for being here this morning. Welcome to Northridge Church. Whether you're joining us from one of our campuses or you're watching, online. Man, I want you to know that we, we view it as an honor that you're here this morning. That for us together to gather and, and to grow in our knowledge of who God is and, and to walk out of here a little bit differently because God stirs in our hearts and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, man, that's an, a powerful thing. And so, man, thank you for being here. If you're a guest here this morning, man, thanks for making the bold choice to come. I know it as a courageous move and we want you to feel welcomed and we hope that this place and these people, whether you're at a campus or not, feels like home, feels like family. And so thanks for being here this morning. And we're in Acts chapter 17. Let me set the background for you. Paul is going throughout the region and he's doing what he always does. He's preaching the gospel. And he's in a region called Berea and he's preaching the gospel and he's having a lot of success. People are coming to know Jesus. The problem is the Jewish people don't like Paul and his message. So they begin to persecute him. And, and the persecution in Berea gets so bad that Paul has to leave his partners in the ministry, Timothy and Silas, and he has to go to a different location. We pick up that location in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So here we pick up our story and Paul goes from Berea to Athens. And as he gets to Athens, he probably sets up shop. We learned last week he was a normal guy working a normal job. So maybe he set up his tent stand. And what does Paul do? He begins to contextualize. He begins to see the city. He begins to look with his own eyes. He begins to talk with people. And here's what he notices. The story starts, Paul's in a new city. It's called Athens. And the first thing he notices is the city is a dark place. It's full of idolatry and evil. I mean, Athens was known for a place where you worshiped whatever and whatever. They had statues of gold and of wood and of silver. Anything man produced, they called it a deity and they began to worship it. And Paul is distressed by this. And what's interesting is I, I think for many of us today, if we found ourselves, Christians, if, if Christians found themselves in a place like Athens, we saw the evil, we saw the mess, we saw the idolatry, it would be enough for us to guess what? Get out of Dodge. 
Like, let's head out of town. This is no good place for a good Christian boy or girl to be. So like, let's get out of here. Let's, let's run as far away as we can. But what's interesting about Paul, and you see this all throughout his ministry, is he's in the thick of sin and idolatry, and it doesn't make him hate these people. It doesn't make him judge these people. You know what it does is it puts a passion in his heart to see God change these people. And, and I, I think that is so challenging to me is I have to learn to let proximity to sin and evil produce a passion in my heart for people. You see, we live in, in Rochester, some of you watching online, maybe you live in a different location. I know we have people from California and North Carolina that watch on a regular basis. Wherever you live, we, we live in Rochester. This is where our church is based out of. And, and here's what I know about Rochester. As you look at the stats, it's, it's not one of the, the, the places that's known for, for being a biblical place. In fact, stats say that we're one of the most post-Christian cities in all of America, least Bible-minded cities. And you look at our state, like, hey, our state just celebrated, they celebrated laws that are least restrictive when it comes to abortion. This is where we live. And you know what it does for Christians, all the legislation and all the evil? You know what it does for most of us is we say, hey, man, I just got to figure out a way to get out of here. Like, run away from this place. But what if our mentality was more like Paul's? We're in the midst of the evil and in the midst of a city that has a lot of people who don't know about God and are far from God. What if that actually produced a passion in me and in you to say, man, I just wanna see God use me and this church to change and turn this city upside down? Well, what if, what if that was our desire? Instead of saying, hey, I gotta get out of here, I, we said, hey, I wanna see God use me right here in the thick of it. Because that's what Paul was like. He saw the idolatry of the city and it produced this zeal in his heart, say, God, use me. Man, I get it because I'm so guilty of this. I remember when I moved from Georgia to New York and a year after we lived here, we, we decided we were going to buy a house. And I remember working with my realtor and working through all the paperwork, looking at, at house after house. And the one thing that stood out of me above everything else was the taxes, I was like, man, I think they made a mistake. There's an extra digit here that doesn't belong. <laughs> and you all know what I'm talking about. Like, no one likes New York state taxes. And I used to complain and complain and complain about it. Until one day I'm sitting in my office with our executive pastor, his name's Scott Bixby, and Scott looks at me and he says, Drew, I get it, taxes are bad, but here's just how I view them. I view them as my admission payment to be a missionary to this great area. And man, I'm telling you, that convicted me and it changed the way I looked at my taxes. As, as high as they are and as much as I don't like them, man, that's the payment I pay to bring the gospel to the great place of Rochester. And I think when we look at life that way and we see maybe some idolatry or we see things, Paul saw a broken place and he didn't run from it. He walked into it and he said, God, use me to change this place. And so what did he do? He started preaching the gospel. And out of that, the culture begins to respond to him. Verse 17, it says this, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching. What was he preaching? The good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so Paul goes into this, this place full of idolatry and he begins to 
talk about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and guess what happens? Religious people don't start listening. Intellectual elites, philosophers start hearing Paul's message, and they're intrigued. And they go to him and they say, what is this crazy lunatic talking about? What is he babbling about? And one of the things I think is a fear when it comes to sharing the gospel is I think some of us, we we think that, man, if I get into a place with really smart people and I tell them about the gospel, I don't know if the gospel can hold its own. And, and I think when it comes to really smart people, we're afraid to tell them about the gospel because can the gospel really hold up in a debate? And what Paul understood was the gospel was ready for any marketplace. The gospel can hold its own in any debate and in any forum and with any brilliant mind. It's ready for debate. And so here's what happens. These intellectual elite, these philosophers, they invite Paul somewhere. Verse 19, it says this. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived in there spent their time doing nothing but talking about, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul begins to preach the gospel and this group of really brilliant minds takes him to what they call the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus, the the world was run by Rome and Rome viewed this city called Athens as this epicenter of intellectual development. It's where the greatest philosophers and thinkers would go and the major player in that was the Areopagus. I mean, the scripture even says there were people who just came here to sit around and listen to the latest ideas and thoughts. And so right here, Paul has this amazing moment to give really a TED talk to some of the most brilliant minds in this day and age on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is his opportunity, but you also have to recognize how dangerous this was. You see, if you go back in time to about 399 B.C., A guy named Socrates found himself right here in the same place with the Areopagus. And Socrates offered this new way of thinking and teaching, and the Areopagus actually condemned him to death. Why? Because he failed to acknowledge the gods of the city, and he was introducing new deities, the very same thing that Paul was getting ready to do to this crowd. And so don't think for a second, this was a great opportunity, but it was a dangerous one. And so Paul, here's what he does. He begins to contextualize his message. He's getting ready to speak to these brilliant minds. And you know what he does is he finds common ground with these people so he could share the truth. And I'm gonna show you three ways he did it. Let's pick it up in verse 22, Paul begins. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I've walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so Paul begins his TED talk. He begins to share with this group called the Areopagus. And the first thing he does to contextualize his message is he understood the culture he was in. He understood the way people thought and the way they believed. And that's the same way we contextualize our messages today is we understand, we understood culture. We know the culture God has placed us in. We know the way people think and and the way they go about things. And that leverages us to lead into the conversation. I, I find it really fascinating that Paul looks at this people and it says this. He says, it says he went around and he looked carefully at the city at their objects of worship. 
When Paul arrived in Athens, one of the first things that he did in really any city was he had conversations with people. He he set up shop and he got to know the area he was in. Why? Because that would set him up for success to preach the gospel. And it's the same for us today. Do you realize that if you're here in Rochester, it's, it's wise as Christians that we know our culture, we know the way people think around here? Because let me tell you, I've ministered in in Atlanta, Georgia as well. And can I tell you, it's a lot different to minister in the South than it is in the North. Because the cultures are completely different. And if I were to move to a different country and became a missionary, I can bet that I wouldn't do ministry the same way as I do here because culture matters. And knowing the culture is really significant when it comes to preaching the gospel. What did Paul see When he first got to the city, he saw that it was full of idolatry. But notice Paul actually commends them for that. He says, hey, I see that you are very religious, spiritual. And what he's doing is he's finding common ground through the culture these people know and love so he can ultimately get to the place he wants to go. So the first thing he did to contextualize was he understood the place and the location he was, the culture. He continues, verse 23, he says, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone, everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations. They should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of the lands. So he begins by understanding their culture, and then what he does is he begins to teach them about God. Now remember, he's speaking to Gentile people. These are people who don't know really anything about God. They're foreigners to God. They're far from God. And so what does Paul do secondly? The second way he contextualizes his message is he avoids assumptions. He he avoids the assumptions that these people have any framework for who God is. And so when he talks about God, he goes back to the very basics, elementary theological principles. He's like, hey, God made everything. And God doesn't need humans. He's not dwelling in a place built by human hands. He created everything we know. These are obvious things we know about God if we grew up in church. But to these people, this was a fresh, brand new way of thinking. If Paul were speaking to the Jews, he would have never said any of this because they already knew it all. They would have been like, Paul, we learned this when we were like second graders. Why why are you wasting our time with this truth? But to the Gentile people, they had no clue who God was and how he worked and what he was like. And so he begins to teach them from the very basics of who God was. He avoids assumptions. And you know, one thing I think we do a lot of times as Christians is we assume people know things that they actually don't know. We, we use like, you know, Christian language, like, hey, you need to get saved. And people are like, what do I need to get saved from? We use words like sanctification and justification. And people are like, what the heck are these people talking about? We even do this in our community groups. You know, our church is known for reaching people who, as adults, have no church background. Like, th- this is the first church they ever came to. And I think in our groups, a lot of times, we'll just walk through passages and we'll talk about stories that we think everybody knows. And for some people, this is like the first time they ever read it. 
We, we, we assume that people know how to pray out loud and they know how to read the Bible, but there's a lot of people in our church, there's some people in our church that just haven't had that framework that many of us have. And Paul got it. He's speaking to Gentile people far from God, foreigners to God, and he starts with the basics. He avoids any assumptions. He continues, verse 27, it says this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul understands their culture. He avoids assumptions. The third thing he does is he speaks their language. He, he, he spoke their language. He, he talked about things that they understood. In fact, look what he does. He quotes their own poets. He uses popular cultural means to get their attention. It would be much like today, you know, hey, I'm trying to make a biblical point, And you know what? I just decide to maybe quote Beyonce, right? Or maybe Jay-Z or, or Taylor Swift or LeBron James because that's what our culture knows. And he uses their poets to, to, to bring about biblical truth. Now let's, let's, let's pause for a second, let's take a breath. I, wanna, I want you to notice a couple things that Paul didn't do. Here he is getting ready to preach the gospel to this group of brilliant minds, and I, wanna, I want you to notice some things that he didn't do. Paul didn't stop and say, hey, could, could I get a guitar and some drums, maybe a lyre, and, and, and could we just get a worship set going before I preach the gospel? Like, I would just like to sing a couple worship songs before we, we, we really get into the truths of Scripture. Notice Paul didn't judge or denounce their way of living. He actually commends it. He doesn't say, you idolaters, turn from your ways and find Jesus. No, he says, hey, I'm actually proud that you guys are really religious. Do you notice Paul never quotes the Bible? Not once does he say, hey, the Old Testament law says this, or the Old Testament scriptures say this. He speaks very biblical in his language, but the only author that he quotes was theirs. Can you imagine if I did that in church? Can you imagine if I just preached a sermon, I didn't actually talk about the Bible, and I quoted secular artists? Heck, we might even sing a secular song. Could you imagine what people would say? How can we do this? I can't believe that. But that's exactly what Paul did. The guy who says, follow my example as I follow Christ's example. I mean, can you imagine that? And so you got to ask the question, why? Why would Paul do all of these things? Why would he know his culture? Why would he avoid assumptions? And why would he speak their language? It was for one purpose. The purpose of contextualization. The reason why we do this today is so we can arrive at the truth. So Paul could present the gospel to these people. He arrived at the truth. All these things were a setup. They were a climax so he could tell them the truth and still have their ears. Verse 29, we see it. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, again, he quotes their author, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Right here, he's getting at the good stuff. He's talking about repentance, turning away from their idolatry. This is the first time he talks about walking in a different direction 
Verse 31, he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, justice by the man he has appointed. That was Jesus. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul does all of these things to get to this place where he can preach the gospel to these people without compromise. He just clearly states it. You need Jesus and you need to turn from the way you're living. And look what happens. Verse 32, the people begin to respond. It says this, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the other people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number others also. So Paul preaches the gospel, and we see some success. We see some rejection, and we see some questions. And what's interesting about this story, I I love this story because I, I think really we can learn a lot from it. Because this was thousands of years ago, but what's amazing is the Bible is so relevant because you realize the same strategy that Paul used thousands of years ago is really the same strategy that we should probably use today. I mean, things that that he did are are so relevant to our church culture and to how we as Christians reach out and love our neighbors who are far from God. And I I wanna share two things with you. Two things. I think the first thing that we have to understand when it comes to reaching people, when it comes to sharing the gospel, the first thing we have to understand is that approach paves the way for truth. The way you say it has almost as much significance as actually what you say. At Northridge Church, we say it a lot like this, approach trumps content. And when we say that, here's what we're not saying. We're not saying that the way you do things is more important than the life-changing message of the gospel. Like the content is always the primary focus. But the truth is, is if you don't approach the gospel the right way, you'll actually never get to the gospel because you'll lose people. How you say something ultimately determines if someone will listen or not. And and we know this to be true. In every relationship that we have, this is true. I think of my marriage. There are times where I'm a jerk, and there's times where my wife is kind of a jerk. (laughs) And in those moments, you, you try to tell your spouse, like, hey, I'm trying to tell you you're being a jerk, but oftentimes when I tell my wife or she tells me, we we go about it the wrong way. And guess what that does is it builds this wall of defense up and the actual content is true. I need it, but I don't hear it because of the way I often or she often approaches it. I mean, do you realize that this is one of the major sources of all the conflict we deal with in life is you try to have a conversation with someone, a spouse, a boss, a coworker, a friend, you try to tell them something tough and it doesn't come out right and you're like, oh, could have done that better. And it creates conflict, right? Because how you approach the truth is just as important as how you, the truth that you're getting to. I mean, we know this when it comes to sharing our faith. We, we've all seen the guy on the street corner with the megaphone, right? We've seen him shouting at people. But here's what's crazy. His content, if you listen, it's actually true. Most of the time, it's like turn or burn. Like, hey, repent, or you're gonna spend eternity in hell, right? Those are actually truths of the Bible. But what's interesting is his method, his approach isn't bringing people to the gospel, it's actually making them run from the gospel. 
because approach paves the way to the truth. And we have to learn how do we approach the gospel? How do we find common ground just like Paul did? And I wanna give you two ways. I think the first thing is we learn grace, then truth. We learn to approach things through grace to lead us to truth. When we interact with people, maybe we start by giving them grace to help us get to the truth. It's interesting, when you think about Jesus, he's described this way, John chapter one, it says this, the word became flesh and dwelt and made his dwelling among us. Let's pause here for a second. You wanna talk about contextualization? Here it is. Jesus, in heaven, his home, left it, came to a different culture, a different world, and became like us. Jesus contextualized. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And this is how it describes Jesus. It says, full of grace and truth. And let me ask you a question. Do you think there's a significance there that grace is actually mentioned before truth? You see, what I would argue is that the chronological order of those two statements is actually very significant. Because if you study Paul's ministry and you study Jesus's ministry, not always, but in most cases, Jesus led with grace to tell people the truth. Think about John chapter eight, the woman caught in adultery, right? She was guilty, she was found, she was caught in the act. So there was no getting around the truth that she was guilty, but what does Jesus do? He offers her grace. And he doesn't offer her grace, he says, hey, where are your accusers? They're gone, he gives her that grace, not so she could go live a life full of sin, but to get to the truth, he says, hey, now, because of my grace, Go, live, go leave your life of sin. You think about Paul, right? Paul in Athens. Paul could easily judge the people for their idolatry, but what does he do? He gives them grace. He says, hey, I'm, I'm so glad that you're religious and spiritual. And here's what, here's what grace does, is when we show empathy towards people, when we show people grace and mercy, what it does is it gains us influence, and it gains someone's ear to actually hear the truth. So maybe today in your relationships, you start with grace. Ultimately, that you can lead people to the truth. Second thing, under the approach. I think we have to learn that the gospel should offend. We shouldn't. The gospel should offend. I or you shouldn't. Do you realize that the gospel in itself is a really offensive message? I mean, think about this for a second. Hey, let me just tell you something. You're a sinner. You're jacked up, you're messed up. Oh, it gets worse, don't worry, that's just the start. It gets worse. Um, you're a sinner and your sin has separated you from God. Oh yeah, it gets even worse. You can't fix it. You can try whatever you want, you, you can't fix it. Oh, and it gets even worse. If you don't fix it, your eternity looks really, really bad. Wow, that's exciting news. Can't wait to tell everybody that, right? The gospel is offensive. Who likes to tell people that they're messed up and they're jacked up and they need God and God, Jesus, is the only way? Like our culture doesn't like only at all. That's our message, right? And it's offensive. People don't like it. You know what the problem is for many of us? <laughs> we never actually let the gospel offend because we're too busy offending people. We never get to the truth and we never let the gospel actually convict and, and offend people because we do it way before we actually get to the gospel. We offend people by the way we look at them, by the way we judge them, by the things we say like, oh, you better stop dressing that way if you wanna receive the gospel. 
Or man, that addiction eh, doesn't really line up with the gospel. And we offend people and they never get to the truth of the gospel. And I think as Christians, we have to learn grace, then truth, and let the gospel never apologize for the actual truth of the gospel offending somebody. But make sure it's the gospel offending people and not you. So approach paves the way for truth. Second thing I think we can learn is when it comes to sharing our faith, when it comes to to preaching the gospel, secondly, rejection isn't failure, silence is. The only way you can fail with the gospel is if you never tell anybody about it. You remain silent, you shut up about what Jesus has done. And when I look at Paul's life, I think one of, the, one of our, our, our fears when it comes to preaching the gospel, telling our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends about the gospel, is we're afraid people might actually laugh at us. They might reject the truth of the gospel. We might lose some relationships. Rejection is a big fear for a lot of us. And what's so amazing and so relatable about Paul's ministry, as you look at it, he preached the gospel everywhere he went. And guess what happened? Even in Athens, look at the responses to his message. Verse 32, it says, some of them sneered. So some of them were like, no, dude, this is people coming alive from the dead. Like, you're crazy, Paul. Others, it says, we want to hear you again on this subject. Some people were just like, hey, I need to hear this again because I have questions. I'm intrigued, but I'm not sure. And others believed. So in one gospel presentation, Paul got a wide variety of responses. Some people were like, you're crazy, dude. Some people had questions, and some people were like, man, I got to give my life to this. And man, it inspires me to know maybe one of the greatest gospel preachers to ever live was rejected. Because Paul knew, and I think oftentimes we need to be reminded of this, is my job is not to change anybody. Bad news for all of us is I don't have the power or the capacity to change anybody. That's God's job. My job is just to simply tell everybody. I I think for some of us today, you have people who are really close to you who don't know Jesus. Maybe it's a mom or a dad. Maybe it's a, a, a daughter or a son. Maybe it's a really close friend and you would do anything to get them to know the gospel, to believe in the gospel. And what that does is that closeness in relationship, what it does is it puts pressure on us. And we think of the times we shared the gospel with them, what if I would have just said it a little bit differently? What if I would have just answered that question a little bit strongly, more strong? Would that have changed everything? And what we do is we put the pressure of the results on us when they were never meant to be. You see, God is the only one capable of changing somebody's heart and it doesn't bank solely on the way you present it because our job is just to tell people about Jesus. And Paul understood this. This is what kept him going from city to city. He was persecuted for the gospel. He was tried to be killed for the gospel. And guess what he did? He kept preaching the gospel because he knew this. First Corinthians chapter three, it says this. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So can I remove the pressure? Your job is just to tell people about Jesus and the results are out of your hands. Paul says, I watered. And then my buddy Apollos, he planted or he's watered the seeds of the gospel. But all of that didn't matter if God didn't choose to make it grow. So you don't have to be afraid of rejection. The thing you should be afraid of is silence. But yet I think for a lot of us, We haven't experienced rejection in a long time. Do you want to know why? 
because we haven't shared the gospel in a long time. I think, man, with Christians, it's so easy. I'm so guilty of this, is I get so consumed in my life, in my desires, what I want to do with my career and what I want to do with my house and how I want to raise my kids. And we get so busy that we actually fail to do the very thing God called us to, just simply tell people about Jesus. Honestly, I think some of us, we just don't care. We've lost that passion and zeal. And I go back to Paul's ministry in his life and that statement he said, he said, I became a slave. I left my freedom behind and I became a slave to people and their needs. I gave up my rights and I gave up my wants. Why? So that people would experience Jesus. And that's my prayer for my life and I hope it's your prayer for your life as well. That we would be willing to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to the great city of Rochester. Let's pray together. God, help us. Help us to be bold and courageous. Help us to be just like Paul. No matter what we're dealing with, we recognize that the results aren't in our hands, but they're in yours, God. Help us to be people who just share the truth. We're inviting people to church. We're telling people about how God has rescued us and changed us. And may you make the difference. May you put a passion again in our hearts, God, for you, more of you. When we see your glory, everything changes. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my prayer for you today is that you are challenged by God's word. And my prayer is that as you leave these uh, doors in this auditorium, that something maybe small or something big would be different about you, that God would renew a passion in your heart to tell people about Jesus, that God would stir a hunger in your heart for more of him. That's why we gather together for God to challenge us and to motivate us to go out into the world and do what he's called us to do. And so if you need help with that, man, I'd encourage you. If you got questions about faith, we'll have a pastor down front. If you got questions about our church, you need to take a next step, whether it's get into a community group that will encourage you, whether it's jump into starting point because you have questions about faith or you need to get baptized or you got questions about, about parent-child dedication. Here's what you need to know. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. You've been following Jesus for 30 seconds. Or you've been following Jesus for 30 years. If you go to our next table, we will answer any questions that you might have. We will help you in the journey of following with Jesus. But thanks for being here again. We love you guys. We'll jump back into this series next week. We hope you have a fantastic day. We'll see you back next Sunday.